Hello and welcome to another episode of What the Fintech, a podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures, and joining me are Sharon Kamathi, Editor at Fintech Futures. Hey guys. And Julian Sawyer, Managing Director for Europe at Digital Currency Exchange Gemini. Hello. Uh, Just a reminder, due to ongoing complications surrounding the coronavirus pandemic, all of us are recording the podcast uh, through technology and are sat safely and separately at home. Now, we're going to be chatting with Julian about digital disruption, innovation, and digital currency a little later on. Uh, But first, we've come here today with some big numbers from the past week or so to talk about. Uh, Julian, since you're the guest, perhaps you'd like to uh, present your your number-led story first. Yeah, sure. The one I, I um, that, that caught my eye was Judo Bank, which is an SME challenger bank in Australia, which has been given uh, $307 million, uh, Australian dollars by the uh, government in Australia to help uh, SMEs through the crisis. And I think this is really interesting in terms of uh, government intervention in, into banking. And I think we're going to see more and more debate over the next few weeks and months about how you have government intervention in a banking world when you're talking about um, lending, when you're talking about risk criteria. Um, and more importantly, as these loans are distributed, how are you going to uh, collect and recover on those um, lending. So I think it's it's really interesting. We've had this in the UK as well. Um, but I think this government intervention is going to challenge a whole range of, uh, of banks. I, th- I just thought it was, it was really interesting that um, the size and scale that is coming out to a relatively new challenger bank within Australia. Yeah, there's been quite a few uh, government announcements across the globe for small, medium-sized enterprises supporting um, sort of their crisis and, you know, crisis management for these uh, small businesses. There was one in Japan, actually, this week that they announced that the small businesses whose revenues have more than halved due to the pandemic uh, will be set to receive 2 million yen, which is roughly 18,350 US dollars. Um, and it will use this under its uh, 108 trillion yen stimulus package. So that's pretty cool. And even today, we've had an announcement from Tide that they are launching its coronavirus government support eligibility checker. Um, This is because in the UK, it seems like there was a bit of confusion and a lack of clarity about the distribution of the funds. So it's cool to see fintechs sort of flying in once again to save the day after we saw um, the COVID credit checker as well from 11FS fronted um, and others as well. So that's quite cool. Uh, what, what are your thoughts, Alex? Yeah, I think with the um, the Judo Bank news, the thing that really caught my eye especially was that it's the um, the investment is makes it the first challenger bank. Uh, recipient of the capital uh, from the from the government's SME funding scheme, and I think it's a change in the way that um, larger organisations, government organisations, see fintechs and challenger banks and this side of the industry as being a solution to problems. Usually, the the go to are the mainstream banks, and in Australia, obviously, a country with four huge major banks that you would imagine they would turn to to solve these issues. It's heartening to see that they're looking at uh, alternatives uh, instead. Yeah, and I think this is where we've got, if we look forward 12, 24 months time, it's going to be really interesting. So we're going to continue to have this as an issue. One is how was the funds 
distributed correctly? What was the risk criteria that was accepted on that lending? And then how are you going to collect that? Because when you've got uh, a government having a, a financial stimulus package, which is literally just throwing money at problems, which is all that we can do, um, there is going to be a lot of of issues going on into the medium and longer term where those were unviable businesses or whether the viable ones didn't have enough money and then how do they repay and what does that mean from an investment uh, and an investor position. So I think this is going to be a story that's going to go on and on. It's absolutely the right thing to be doing, uh, but we shouldn't just think this is going to be something that we talk about for the next few weeks and then stop. I think that this is um really, really interesting and a real challenge for old organizations. While I think some of the challenges are going to be fantastic at getting the money out because they can do things on their uh, their apps in a very different way from a customer experience perspective, the experience of recovering collections of those is where probably the bigger banks have got the decades of experience. And I think it's having that challenge will be interesting. I I think... um... Sharon's come here this week with a, a similar um, story, in fact, from the UK, and it's to do with Nationwide and its, uh, its £50 million banking competition remedy. Isn't that right, Sharon? Yes, yes, indeed. So it sort of flows quite naturally uh, with what Julian's point was. Uh, so they were given this funding um, as part of trying to tap into the SME lending industry. Uh, and their CEO, Joe Garner, said that COVID-19 has changed the medium-term interest rate landscape meaning the business case for entering the market is no longer viable. I think it's relatively fair enough. It's better to return that 50 million funding after trying it out, knowing it didn't work out, not having anything to show for it and no money to return. I think that would be a bit more awkward. Um, But they're not the only ones. There's also Metro Bank who also returned their 50 million funding earlier this year. Uh, But what was interesting to note is that there's a business financing firm, Rangewell, who thinks that the funding money should actually go towards assisting SMEs and charities who are struggling to cope in the midst of this coronavirus crisis. Um, So they said that the BCR should actually hand the returned funds over to the Treasury within days. So it can relieve those healthcare services which have been forced to reduce hours or close altogether like dentists, opticians, pharmacies, vets, etc. And also poverty alleviation, the armed forces support and emergency services. And then Rishi Sunak yesterday announced a 750 million package to keep these struggling charities afloat. But loads of organizations are saying it's just not enough. And loads of small businesses are saying this is not far enough because we are about to go bust really soon. Even ones that are charities and ones that are NGOs or help people out, they're all really struggling in this crisis. So I, I don't know, guys, is Rangewell's take then a bold move or is it just the most obvious thing to put that money into this part? What do you think, Julian? I, I think this is really interesting. If we just look at the background to the banking Commission and the remedy came out of the last financial crash in 2008. And this was due to the RBS uh, getting their bailout from the UK government. Um, we're now in another crash or crisis. Um, so it's kind of interesting that this was a, a government stroke EU initiative to increase competition. Um, and I think we should separate this into two parts. The first part is how can we generate more competition in the SME market in the UK? And as you said, Sharon, with um, Metro handing back um, 50 million out of their 120 million grant nationwide doing um, the whole of their grant being handed back, you know, you've got to challenge um, 
what what do we do with that money in terms of stimulating SME uh, banking, which is what it was there for? Um, I think it's slightly riding on the on the COVID nineteen um, uh, bandwagon uh, here. I think these are two separate issues. One is how do we support as a, 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 an economy the uh, businesses that are struggling, we should absolutely do that. I don't think conflating this with the 100 million that the BCR has to now redistribute is the right answer. Um, because I think the time frame for doing that, the legal precedence that has to go on with the BCR, because that was all agreed at government and at EU level. Um, I, I think those are two different things that have been uh, put together for, I think, the wrong reasons. Um, but I think just tying back to... Um, my news article, this is really interesting. This is government intervention again. And it is really, really difficult. And if, you know, out of the four biggest winners of the BCR, two of them have now handed back funds, that is really um, uh, challenging and um disruptive to the process that is going on, which is leaving, you know, uh, Starling and Clearbank as the two people who have who have won uh, the grant, but are actually now delivering. And I think that all just becomes really interesting in that government engine piece. Fantastic. Well, I've brought something that's a little bit uh, left field, actually. Um, and I've, I've actually picked something numberless for my week in numbers piece, because uh, fintech firm Curve, which offers the uh, the app that collates all of your different banking cards is launching its own numberless card for investors who invested in its latest six million pounds crowdfunding round. Um, of course, the industry standard for debit and credit cards is the uh, the primary account number or uh, PAN or PAN, uh, 14, 16 digit number unique to each card you've got. But uh, Curve thinks that it's decluttered its new cards and provided, and I quote, uh, a fresh looking and sleek design. Um, you'll be able to access the, the usual details of the cards on the Curve mobile app. Uh, the cards still obviously work with chip and pin machines alongside contactless uh, because all the data is stored in the card's chip. Um, Natalie Ersman, the, the company's uh, COO, said that they believe that uh, panelist cards will be the future of payments. Uh, the only other card I've come across like this is the, the Goldman Sachs-sponsored uh, Apple Card, which was launched without its own number on the card body. But that was mainly because Apple sort of expected that a majority of the payments made via those cards would be made via the the Apple Pay mobile app. Uh, I don't know if anyone else has seen any, any other examples of numberless cards or, or, or what they think. Um, Sharon? Yeah, I think I saw one uh, last year, Grab Pay. They launched Asia's first numberless digital and physical card in December in Singapore. And then actually, there's another one. Uh, so I like. <laughs> so there's two. There's Banco Santander as well, who've launched theirs in Mexico in February. So literally just a month apart from this one, um, saying that the numberless credit card can reduce the risk of fraud by up to 90 percent. Um, and when I was trying to find out where this research was from, it was actually quite difficult to pin down where they got that 90 percent from. But I assume it must at least be a bit accurate um, and it does seem safer. Plus, it, it looks quite sleek, quite minimalistic. No one can sort of see what your card is from from your shoulder. How about you, Gillian? What are your thoughts? I, I think this is interesting. And I think, you, I think you've got to look and see through this in two lenses. One is, is this some very good, very clever PR and marketing of which Curve is very, very good at, at shouting about things and they've done a great job? I think the second bit is, what's the use case and the usability of that? So, 
yes, I can do that in point of sale. How do I do this on e-com? So I will then need to use the app, et cetera. I think at the point of sale, the challenge I think you have got is acceptance. And while I think there were some markets in the UK being one where even just putting the details on the back of the card rather than the front of the card, like Tide or Starling, et cetera, is, is kind of accepted. When you go on holiday and you're going to a foreign country and you're using your card, will it be accepted? And you can turn it around. If you've got a Starling card, you can turn it around and point to the 16 digits and you'll, you'll get through that. I just wonder if it looks too much like a library card or a hotel access card, will it actually be accepted? So I think it's, it's the use case here. I think it's a great PR. I think innovation is fantastic. It's just trying to make sure that it is workable and uh, usable out, out there in the real world. We now head into the main part of the podcast, the juicy patty in the middle of the hamburger, as it were. We're going to be talking about the wave of digital disruption caused by investigations into digital currency and stable coins, and with many central banks all over the globe investigating the issuance of digital versions of their own coinage, I'm sure there's a lot to talk about. Um, but to kick things off, Julian, why don't you give us a rundown of, of what you're seeing in the market right now? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think one of the things that I th- is really interesting is... I think we're seeing three trends and hopefully the perfect storm coming together at the same time. And that is that regulators are now actively engaging in this topic. Um, And there's been a whole range of different discussions, whether that's on uh, the central bank digital currencies, whether that is a private um, stable coin like a Libra, uh, how do you regulate exchanges, what's the fifth money laundering directive, et cetera. So without a doubt, regulators are now engaging um, and are um, working through how they manage this market. That is fantastic, and we absolutely support that, and that is can't come any, any, any quicker for us. I think the second part is, which kind of logically follows, which is institutions are now talking about crypto. Um, and the way I describe this is, you know, I think to date, and I'm relatively new into this industry, so I've been in the fintech, I've been in the challenger bank space, I've been in payments, but the, the thing that I observed And the primary reason of joining Gemini is because of this perfect storm, is that the institutions have moved from being a project that was done in the innovation lab or in the technology function to now being business owners within family offices, asset managers, banks, et cetera, going, how am I going to make money? What is the products? What are we offering to our customers? Uh, How do we manage the risk and compliance around this? And that becomes... um, really, really interesting is that people are now engaging and talking and thinking about this from an institutional perspective. And then finally, we've got consumers. And the thing that I think is very exciting is that move from the innovators and early adopters into the mainstream. And I, I, I've got to go back to my background at Starting Bank when, you know, 
people would say you're crazy to do this, you're crazy to do a current account, etc. And you look at what's been achieved there and at Monzo and Revolut, etc. And you just go that you wouldn't say that was crazy now, would you? And I think that is where we're getting. We're getting people who are outside of that innovators, there's earlier adopters using it. And I think the more that we as an industry can show this innovation, can show these use cases, which I think are you know, some of them we haven't even worked out yet. We haven't even thought about. So we want some great brains to help us work through what are these use cases about where crypto can can be used. And stablecoin is a fantastic example. And, and I hope we talk about that today as well. But that becomes um, a super interesting play. So what I think, you know, just going back to the latest trends, I think it is that perfect storm of regulators consumers and institutions all coming together, all talking about this. It's going to become much more mainstream in the conversations uh, and that will just develop uh, this market. So this really is 2020, putting all the challenges this year has got is going to be the point, I think, and this new decade when this is really going to take off and become mainstream. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I agree that it's sort of that perfect storm as people are now talking about it. More people are looking at using it properly. Um, But these days you can't really bring up uh, crypto, stablecoin, digital coins without talking about Facebook's Libra. Uh, Now, your company, Gemini, specifically has a history with Zuckerberg um, because we all know that um, Gemini was formed by the Winklevoss twins. Um, so how did you guys internally react to the news that Zuckerberg is now getting involved in making a Zuckerbucks? Well, I think if I can just take take a step back, I think, you know, when you look at stable coins, um, I think you, you there's really two different parts to this. There's the private company stable coins like a Libra or Gemini Dollar or, or Tether. And then there's the central bank stable coins or the, the digital currencies. And that is a whole... Um, uh, area that I again is really really interesting in terms of where this is going. But what I think it is good, and, and the thing that we at Gemini absolutely welcome is this is introducing the conversation to more and more people. So we think that the response that Libra has had with the regulators is super important because it starts to go back to my previous point, which is the regulators are now talking, now understanding uh, what this means to regulate these type of products, these type of services, the risks that are uh, around this, and, and how do you continue to monitor that, which is obviously what they are there for. So regulation is important. Stable coins, absolutely uh, and the news that's over the last, you know, 18, 24 months around this, including on Libra and Tether, et cetera, is about credibility. And the more people that are talking about this, the more that we can educate consumers about what this is and what this product is and how it can be used, I think is really interesting. And I would like to go back to my previous point because I think it's about where innovation comes. And I think stable coins are really, really interesting. And for us at Gemini, I see us as a an infrastructural component where we are providing an exchange. What would be really great is to get the fintechs, the innovators, the startups thinking, oh, we can do something with this. Okay, They can bolt onto our APIs. They can start to transact. They can do something which solves real problems. And that becomes um, super important. I think our view and my view is... Um, the more that we can all be in this, and it's a collective activity and a collective push 
the better. So this isn't going to be one company, whether it's, you know, Libra or JP Morgan coin or whatever. It's going to be a collection and a collective of activities that are going to make uh, stable coins really interesting. So we welcome any players within this market. If they're doing it under a regulatory uh, compliance manner, then this is all super good for us. That's really good news. I mean, it's it's good to be more on the supportive angle. Um, I thought it would be funny if it was like, what, he's getting involved in this? <laughs> <laughs> that would have been quite fun, but alas, there, there I go. It's not going to go there, yeah. I know, my script, uh, roll it up in a ball, check it in a bit, <laughs> don't know what to say next. Um, but speaking of solving these real problems and it being a collective activity, we also saw the U.S. Senate floating the idea of a digital coin um, when they were discussing their two trillion coronavirus bill. Now, do you think that digital currency and coins can actually help during this crisis? I think this is a a really interesting question because I think you've got different dimensions here. Um, First of all, we do know, and all the hard work that everybody has been doing Uh, in the NHS and surrounding uh, suppliers into that have fundamentally transformed how they've done business with the NHS, how the NHS has delivered uh, the health service and the support that we've all needed. They've fundamentally transformed themselves in the last four to six weeks. So we do know that in times of crisis, whether that is a national disaster, a pandemic or war, that lots that innovation fundamentally uh, speeds up. Um, and so we shouldn't lose, lose sight of that. I think we've also again got to put our feet on the ground and go, actually, if I have lost my job, if I can't afford to buy food um, or I can't afford to pay my rent, do I really need another currency? No. Um, we are fortunate in uh, the UK and many other Western countries that we have a very good network for making payments, which are under the Visa and MasterCard brands. They work. Um, now, there's lots of things that digital currencies and digital assets and stable coins, whatever you want to call it, will help and make uh, some of the inefficiencies in the payments world better. Um and I'm thinking cross-border remittances, B2B, et cetera. But is that the problem we're trying to solve for right now? What we're trying to solve for is businesses that are going bust, people not having enough money in their bank accounts, people not being able to afford um, to pay their rent or to uh, or need to support carers and things like that. And that is not going to be solved by this innovation. What I do think is going to happen, and we're going to see that not just in financial services, but a whole range of other services that we have within uh, our our country that will fundamentally change. And we can talk about how that is on distribution of healthcare. We can talk about that in terms of even things like working at home and doing podcasts at home. That would not be thought about (laughs) um, a few weeks ago, but now we're all doing this, hopefully okay. Um, So I think what we are going to see is different is changes in things that is uh, being accelerated by uh, this disaster. And we've seen time and time again over years, over decades, when there are national challenges that things are sped up. So will this be the answer to the coronavirus? Absolutely not, in my view. Um, Will it be accelerated? Will there be other reasons why we should be doing it? Absolutely. But let's not 
again, uh, use this as the reason to run on the bandwagon of the virus. It will not solve the challenges that people are facing today. I'm so glad you mentioned that because there's so many like op-eds and hot takes on Bitcoin or crypto or even DLT solving this whole thing. And I'm so glad that you've not said, you know, it's going to save the day. It's going to be some Bitcoin. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with that. And speaking of this digital wave, uh, I think personally part of that digital wave is challenger banks and now mashing up challenger banks and hot takes. <laughs> There have been mm-hmm. plenty of hot takes about their survival during this crisis. Having previously worked at Starling Bank um, and other banks, what do you think will actually happen to some of these challenges during the crisis and also post the crisis? So I, I think there's, you know, at the macro level, going almost replicating what I was just talking about, the shifts, is that there is going to be and has been a huge, huge shift from physical banking to digital banking. So whether you are with one of the incumbents or whether you're one of the challengers, you are now uh, going to branches much less because some of them are being closed down absolutely correctly. Um, and you are, this is the thing that's pushing lots of people who were like, I'm not really that bothered about the digital side or I don't really need the app. I can go into my branch or I can do everything uh, you know, on a browser, et cetera, suddenly going, I can't do everything. I need to have this. Um, this service. So I think what this is, and, and it's a one-way road. This is this is more people are using digital uh, to do their banking than ever before, and that will continue. And it, people won't go back to to that. So it will have other consequences, I think, in financial services. In terms of uh, the challenger banks, um, and as you said, I, I was at uh, Starling. So I, I I think one of the the challenges um, that we outside the industry, and I use we now, uh, is that we think all challenger banks are the same. And I think you've got to take a step back and go, they're not. There are some that are more e-money companies that are more brands, you that are not doing the lending side. You have others that are doing just the payments cards at the weekend. um, And you've got other people who are true banking. Um, And I think the ones that are going to you know, survive and, um, you know, excel in this environment and post-crisis are the ones that are doing banking, not those that are doing an additional financial services app. I think you've then got to look at some of the business models and you've got to go, if there's no spend happening, what is your business model? Why do I need your product if I'm not spending anything? And secondly, why do I need your product if I'm not going overseas and I'm not doing any FX? And therefore, you've got to look at the fundamentals of these. And one of the things that I used to uh, to say quite a lot is that a number of the challenger banks are not actually challenging the business model of banking. Um, and I use Starling as a very good example of that. You know, it is not challenging the business model. It is creating a better, fundamentally better customer experience and a better way of execution to bring those uh, customer benefits to the front. Therefore, it is about lending. It's about uh, interchange. It's about net interest margin, et cetera. But the key thing is it's lending. So if these challenger banks and inverted commas are not lending and don't have the ability to, then I think there is going to be a natural challenge in terms of their 
profitability and therefore their sustainability in times of crisis. Because this this is not an economic cycle which could have been predicted. This is a crisis and therefore that does change some of that. But I think it does, as I said at the beginning, I think it fundamentally drives that digital agenda, which uh, I'm personally very passionate about. And uh, there's a lot of people um, doing some amazing stuff in the fintech in industry, which I think will really bring to the front uh, that usability and helping people doing stuff with their money and managing their money better. And now we come to the final segment of the show, the one you've all been waiting for, Fintech Jail. This is where our guest submits a buzzword, a trend, technology, concept, or even company that irks them and argues why they need to be put away for good. Sharon and I will then debate whether it deserves a place uh, in the Fintech Jail. So Julian, who or what do you think deserves to be put away for good, locked away with no chance of parole? So when I was thinking about this, I was uh, trying to probably be far too clever for my own good. So Room 101 is part of 1984, which is George Orwell. And uh, one of his other books was Animal Farm. Um, And one of the things that came out of Animal Farm was that uh, we're all equal, but some are more equal than others. Um, And I wanted to talk about crypto exchanges because I think we have got a, a challenge and an opportunity as an industry to explain that while we're all crypto exchanges, we're not all equal. And I think this is going to be a uh, a challenge in terms of explaining to consumers, explaining to institutions, et cetera, why one is different than the other and why one is better than the other. And that's you know around security, regulation, compliance, customer experience, et cetera. And I think... The challenge that we have got, as I say, in the industry is try to educate and inform because they're not all the same. Um, And this probably goes back a little bit to what I was talking about with challenger banks, that actually they all get lumped into one big bucket and they're not all the same. And I don't really know what the answer is and I don't know what should go into the jail if it does. But I think there is a Uh, an industry buzzword, the term that is used. And actually, we need to start changing the dialogue, the discussion, the the points of view that means actually there are some that are better or different than, um, than the other. So they're not all equal. Some are more equal than others. So, so who's, uh, I would be remiss of me not to do my job if I wasn't trying to stir things here, but, uh, so who's more at fault then? Is this, is this a, a user side problem? Is it an industry side problem or is it a, is it, is it us? Is it the media? Are we, are we the issue, uh, muddying the waters here? Um, I think it's yes, all of those. I mean, as a market that develops, you have then market uh, information providers that start to provide some clarity. Uh, and there's, there's people who are starting to do that now. So uh, the likes of um, Crypto Compare and people like that will assess different uh, exchanges. Um, I think it's about having transparency. Um from the exchanges and from the market. Um, I think it's about communication and it's about education. And and I think there is a real um, danger, which really goes back to the first point we talked about in terms of that perfect storm, which is we've got to get out of this echo chamber 
of all the crypto companies and everybody who's interested in crypto all talking. And we need to get out into that mass market, but we need to do that in a, in a controlled way, in an educated way, and in and an informed way so people can make a informed decision about what they want to trade and where they want to store those assets. Um, and that becomes uh, super important. So I, I don't think there's any one group um, to, to, to blame. I don't think it's a blame thing. I think it's a maturity thing. But I, I think what is really interesting is just to uh, recognize this. And therefore, as an industry, we should be working to go, well, how do we help to solve this problem? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, it is about education. And I did recently, I don't want to plug myself, but hey, here I go, um, write an essay for a journal about that um, in the respect of crypto and regulation and compliance. And basically, my ultimate conclusion is that you have to educate not just the end user, which you definitely, definitely do, but also the regulators who are looking into this. They need to fully understand what actually is going on in the crypto space in order to regulate it accordingly. I mean, otherwise, we're just going to keep seeing lawsuit after lawsuit because there have been um, 11 lawsuits filed on Friday in the U.S. District Court in Manhattan, um, and that was for crypto issuers, Block One, Tron, but also the exchanges, Binance and BitMEX. So we are seeing more involvement um, and sort of questions coming up from consumers. Uh, and then it ends up in, you know, an ugly lawsuit because things were not clarified. And where there's a lack of clarity, there's often, you know, errors that might seep right into that ambiguity. So for yep. me, I don't know about Alex, but I want to lock that bad boy up, to be honest. I do want to lock the crypto exchange up for at least 20 years until regulators and everyone can fully understand what's going on. How about you, Alex? I, I think the, the term that, that stood out to me from what Julian was saying was, was the cryptocurrency echo chamber. I think, I think if we can tie it down to just being, uh, I think the cryptocurrency echo, echo chamber can certainly go in, into, the, into the fintech jail as, as a concept. And I think, yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, I, I'm fully on board with you there. It's it, when I started out as a journalist, I thought, oh, cryptocurrency—that's a really interesting topic to start uh, researching, and then swiftly realised my mistake. But um, and I haven't stopped—I haven't stopped researching it since I started all all of those six or seven years ago. So I think I think even despite that amount of time going by, yeah, I think it's it's something that we should lock away for the time being, anyway, until there's some more understanding. So we will lock that one away in the jail to join the other buzzwords trends and irritants boom we did it <laughs> slam that door shut well that's all we have time for this episode uh thanks to sharon hey yes thank you for having me and to julian Thank you, Alex. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys, for joining on this episode of What the Fintech. Uh, before we sign off, though, uh, we're going to plug some socials. Julian, maybe you'd like to go first? Yeah, I'm on uh, link LinkedIn, uh, Julian Sawyer, and also on Twitter, Julian underscore Sawyer, and also we're at, uh, at Gemini. Cool. What about you, Sharon? You can find me on Twitter at Fintech Kits. That's Fintech, the way you would usually spell it. And then Kits is K-I-T-S. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn under my full name, Sharon Kits Kimathy. And yeah, just, you know, feel free to send me a little hi or whatever. Yeah. 
and you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Alexander Hamilton, uh, the unfortunate, I'm not a Broadway star, unfortunately. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at ADHamilton91. As for FinTech Futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com, on Twitter at, at FinTechFutures, and on LinkedIn just by searching for FinTech Futures and looking for our gorgeous logo. Uh, if you like the podcast and our other episodes, remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service. We'd also really appreciate it if you could help other listeners find the podcast by writing a review or recommending us to a friend. Uh, thanks very much for your support, and we'll see you for another episode of What the FinTech Soon. But until then, goodbye. <laughs>